1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 186 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm Andy Benello, pinch hitting for George Redis. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in the show are my own, and not that, that of my present or past employers, I'll never knowingly disclose any sensitive intelligence that I have been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I'll never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances or presently hold I've held in the past in the United States government. And nothing I say during the show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and get a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at the very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, a check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at CSHUB.com. Well, folks, last week I brought on another industry leader, co founder, and chief revenue officer, Chris Kirsch. Join me on episode number 185 of Task Force 7 Radio to share his perspective on why companies have historically struggled solving. I think one of the largest problems in companies today, the asset inventory problem, and the unique approach Rumble is taking to solve it. Chris also shared his and his partner, H.D. Moore, the co-founder and, uh, of the Metasploit Framework, journeys that led them to start Rumble. We finished up the show with Chris sharing his advice for new entrepreneurs and early career cybersecurity practitioners. So, folks, there's a ton for everybody. All this and much, much more on Task Force 7 Radio, episode number 185. If you missed last week's episode, don't sweat it. We're at, at least 11 different playback meetings. You can find us everywhere, folks. That's episode 185, Solving the Biggest Challenge Companies Have, the Asset Inventory Problem, on last week's episode of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, folks, I'm excited about having our guest on tonight. We get the CEO and co-founder of Abnormal Security, Evan Reiser. Evan Reiser is the CEO and co-founder of Abnormal Security, an enterprise email security platform that uses behavior behavioral Data science to start, start targeted attacks. Evan is an expert in applying machine learning solutions with over a decade of operational experience building enterprise behavioral profiling technologies. Evan most recently led product management and machine learning teams for Twitters, advertising business, and prior to that, co-founded several successful startup companies, including Bloomspot, which was acquired by Morgan Chase, and AdStack, which was acquired by Telepart. It's my pleasure to introduce CEO of Abnormal Security. Evan Riser. Evan, welcome to Task Force Seven Radio, buddy. Andy, thanks so much for having me on. Excited to chat with you again. Yeah, man. Look, I'm so every time we get a chance to chat, it's it's an honor and a privilege. I'm always having a good time. You know, you got such a great perspective. And uh listen, man, you've been killing it throughout your whole career. And you know, your current, you know, gig as CEO of Abnormal Security is really taken off. I've been loving tracking your success. And I, you know, I can't wait later in the show to dive into the BEC, Business Email Compromise, and the dive into just the state of email security and kind of where you see all that going. But I would love for you to really just take the first part of this show and start to just give the audience a little flavor into your journey and kind of how you ended up as CEO of Abnormal.
2: Yeah, sounds good. I mean, I'll I'll, uh, I'll give the kind of a longer version. Just please interrupt Um you know, so I, I've been an entrepreneur for a long time and I'm almost my, my fourth company. Um, and I kind of got into it in like a really weird way my background's not in cybersecurity. It's actually in um, kind of enterprise software and in, in advertising. And I kind of go like all the way back. Um, you know, I, I, I never, you know, never, never, didn't know anything about programming growing up. Um, I was really into video games. And so when I thought about going to college, I went to school for Computer engineering, which I thought was like building computers to play video games, and so I turned out to all be math. So it was I loved a, it. that was a kind of a you know a, a surprise there. And then um, you know, in, in school, I, I wasn't a particularly good student. Actually, I failed out my first year of college, and uh, you know I uh, went back home. I worked like a minimum wage job for like three months, and I was like, you know what, uh, I don't want to do this. I'm gonna I don't want to work in retail. I'm gonna go back and like study really hard. So that kind of like that was like the first mistake in my career. I you know, didn't really kind of. I didn't really have work ethic, so I really fell down and got back in. I was like, I got to make this work, and so I, you know, I studied, uh, you know, computer engineering, um, learned learned to program kind of in school. Um, I my my first job out of college, I had no idea really what I wanted to do, but I was really excited about living in Manhattan, so I, uh, did, you know, worked work at a you know basically a firm on Wall Street, you know, writing software to pick out stocks, and I lasted about eighteen months, and I was like, hey, I don't think this is. The life for me. And so I, uh, you know, knowing kind of like nothing as a total amateur, total noob, and I uh, left my job to go start a, uh, a company. And I kind of went back to my, you know, one of my original passions, which is gaming, um, and had this idea of building kind of a social networking website for people who play video games. And, um, you know, it was a uh, awesome product, lots of users uh, made like no money. So it was not a, uh, <laughs> I, knew, I knew nothing about business really at all, but I knew like uh, you're supposed to kind of, build websites and products that people liked and, uh, you know, got into that. And, um, after about 18 months to realize, you know, it was had a really successful product, but, um, you know, realized that, uh, you know, we didn't make any money. literally couldn't have, couldn't have paid, uh, couldn't afford to pay our, our bills. So I, um, you know, ended up kind of shutting that down and actually it's still around today, although it's changed a lot. Um, I moved out to Silicon Valley about, you know, maybe 12 years ago and kind of met up with this Yahoo executive who was, um, you know, uh, he was trying to launch this kind of new company. And I, I helped start the company. It was basically a luxury version of Groupon. Um, it was kind of a totally different time. You know, I, ne- I didn't know anything about venture capital or Silicon Valley. So, you know, we, we built this company, we raised, you know, $50 million and we hired, you know, 200 people and it was kind of up and to the right. And we didn't quite realize it was, you know, did it wasn't, it turned out like that was not a very good business model. And it wasn't very successful, but, you know, so I, I moved on to do a, you know, to get kind of more into enterprise software. Started another company doing actually email marketing, right? Kind of machine learning technology to personalize email, email, you know, marketing communications by kind of building these behavioral profiles. That company got bought by another company called Telepart, which is a behavioral kind of ad targeting company, uh, which, you know, I I, I I we got bought. I was the was about 30 people at the company at the time. I became the you know the first product manager and we grew that that business was actually very successful and I really learned a lot from there. I had some really good mentors, um, you know, the CEO and the the head of engineering. And and we built built that business about a hundred million a year in revenue and um got bought by Twitter in 2013. Um it was you know Twitter's largest acquisition ever. And then I worked at Twitter for about three years, uh d- doing kind of um, ads targeting, ads prediction basically. Using different types of machine learning technologies to you know kind of figure out how to personalize content ads on on Twitter. So I ran the you know the the ads ads uh, machine learning team, um, and then you know I, I spent some time there. I uh, realized I want to get back into kind of building companies again, and that's how I got started with abnormal security. It's kind of a, a longer story about how you know why that was a thing and how I went from being kind of an ad an ad tech guy into cybersecurity. But I'll I'll share more more about that later. But that's yeah, kind of been my I, I my love journey. That.
1: I love that path, man. And I I think there's a couple of things that, you know, really resonate with me. One, your back goes against the wall. You want to figure out some way new. And you said like, I'm going to go bet on myself and and kind of almost get an MBA through, you know, being an entrepreneur, right? Which is like completely commendable and and tough to do. Uh, The second, which I, I find interesting is you seem to have worked on something very early on in your entrepreneur career, around vertical networks right and by that we we mean you know building something specific for a specific audience because they have like they're like-minded people with specific needs and you're seeing that start to play out a lot more now but you know doximity just went ipo like the medical you know network for doctors um you know what was it that you saw early on around verticalization Uh, compared to, you know, kind of where they failed and where the market wasn't really ready for it compared to maybe where the market's ready for it now.
2: Yeah. I mean, back in the day, I had no idea what I was doing. So like, you know, um, but I've I've thought a lot about it since then. Um, And I think, you know, so when when I started kind of this this gaming company, um, you know, I guess it was like 20, I guess it was uh, 2007 or so. And so, you know, MySpace was really big. Facebook was just starting to take off. I think that there's like kind of general social networking platforms. I think they're 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 you know they're good for kind of staying in touch with your friends, but they're also kind of very generic, right? And I think that a lot of people, you know, especially in this time, they're starting to kind of use the internet more as a way to kind of meet people, to learn things. And so, you know, we had this site, you know, we, we felt like the kind of existing social networks were kind of generic, but kind of insufficient for you know some of the specific use cases in gaming, it was trying to meet friends online, trying to get, you know, um, trying to get into esports, trying to like really, it's more for like entertainment and kind of, you know, finding people with similar interests, right. That, that care about the same stuff. And so, you know, we just kind of, you know, found an, a niche there and um, it was something just, it was, it was very fun. It, you know, it wasn't a profitable business. I was very, you know, I was fairly poor at the time, right. I played, you know, poker to pay for our server bills. Um, but it, it was, it was really fun. I think just, you know, having a community of people that were really, engaged and excited with something that was just, um, you know, it was, it was fun to see that community grow. I'm sure you know, you've you've seen the
1: same thing with TF7. Um, and yeah, no doubt. I, yeah, I, no doubt. And, and there's a need for it. Right. And I think Doximity is kind of setting the stage for, for those types of you know businesses to kind of have some success. Like, cause they don't, they don't fit the typical Silicon Valley mop. Yeah, and I think there's an opportunity now to kind of shift that. And did you feel like you ran up against that a little bit, or was it just the fact that you were, you know, kind of new into being a, a business owner? Well, I
2: think the, the, the playbook of, the, I mean, I think the playbook at the time was you, you build these big consumer web properties and you, you know, and, and there's some kind of, there's a product there that attracts people, right? And it's actually, you know, even for us, it was a very successful product. We had you know, exponential growth in users, but there really wasn't a business model. The only business model that was viable at the time was, was advertising. And so obviously, you know, we, we, we kind of advertised, but this is kind of before there was, you know, programmatic networks and very sophisticated ad targeting. So it was, it was actually very difficult. I mean, we had, a hundred thousand people using your website in in, you know, a a month, right. We had, we're making like, you know, thousands of dollars, right. Which is, you know uh, which is, which is hard. I I think one thing that's changed a lot recently, right. Is that um, well, there's two things. One is I think people are more than ever, like looking for ways to kind of connect with communities online. It's much, much different today, right. And they're trying to find other people with similar interests and similar passions, and they want to kind of learn and being connected and find job opportunities. So I think that like the, the, the product, those type of products, right? These kind of vertical, you know, kind of community products, right? Are much in businesses. They're much more just viable, I think today. But I think the, the more important shift is around kind of the, the business model for these companies, right? For us, we were making, you know, sense per user, right? And if you look at, you know, whether it's LinkedIn or Doximity, right? Um, there's kind of other ways of kind of advertising, right? Or sorry, other ways of, um, you know, kind of, you know, funding the growth of these communities right outside of just advertising. Um, and so I think there, you know, there's, and now these, these products can monetize, you know, 10 to hundred X more effectively, which, you know, is not, you know, not necessarily important just for driving profit, but like that, that money goes to actually, you know, back into the community, right. Building better products you know, tra- tracking more people in. So I think just that there's a fundamental shift in kind of um, you know, how people use these products and kind of how, you know, the the business business model behind that, I think will unlock the opportunity for more of these kind of, you know, products to be successful in the future, right? So you know, and I think your your point around doximity is is it's a great example.
1: Yeah, I mean I appreciate that insight. I mean I think it's it's such the, the timing is really good. Uh, and I think people are to your point kind of you know tired of the horizontal nature. Of, of being connected to other people. They really want to make sure they're getting the right content at the time that they want it, when they want it, um, for whatever interest they have, right? Be able to pivot between okay. multiple platforms to be able to get that, right? And I think, you know, that that's going to be an interesting kind of journey as things kind of progress. Uh, but, you know, sw- switching gears a little bit, you know, you you, know, you talked about, um, you know, your success, you know, getting you know acquired by Twitter. The, the three-year run of Twitter had to have been, you know, a ton of fun and learned a lot of lessons. What would you think the, the biggest thing you learned coming out of your time at Twitter?
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, I have to think about kind of like, I have to think about it. I mean, the biggest lesson for me personally was, you know, I've always been someone that's kind of have worked really hard. Right. I never really kind of learned to scale. I think as, as a manager, and I remember I got to a point at, you know, and so I always kind of like, had I tried to do more and have a bigger impact on the company by just kind of putting more hours in. And so I remember at one point, you know, as I was, um, you know, as I was, I was taking on more responsibility at Twitter, I just started kind of working more and more. And at some point I was working, you know, 12 hours a day, six days a week. And I was really burned out. And I'm just like, you know, I, I can't do this anymore. I'm just going to start working nine to five. I'm going to kind of start phoning it in. Right. Which is like never even my attitude in, 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 in my life. And very surprisingly, like, you know, what I started doing is just really prior I kind of capped my time, I really started prioritizing and do, I did a much better job of delegating. And I think just, you know, and, and, and surprisingly, I started to end up having a bigger impact, right? So I think it's one of the biggest lessons for me, I think at Twitter is, you know, the biggest company I've ever worked at. And I think, you know, learning how to work, not just as an individual, but kind of to work as a team and, you know, learning how to get, you know, 100 or 200 people all pointing in the same direction Fighting the same fight, kind of working together to solve a, a problem for customers. That that's something that I, I had, you know, never I never had seen at that at, at any type of scale. And so I think, you know, for me that was kind of my my biggest lesson personally. Just you know, not using kind of my work ethic and my extra time as a crutch, but really learning how to kind of focus on higher leverage work and you know just be kind of you know kind of see you know trying trying to work smarter, right, rather than working harder.
1: Yeah, it's a, a great point. I mean, I think, you know, as we progress as executives, you, you get turned on a lot more tools and coaching and kind of trial and error around, you know, self-awareness and behaviors that, you know, to kind of help you scale and, and do more as you're managing large organizations that have more responsibility. Um, but I, I do think it's an interesting topic because, you know, on the show, we've talked a lot about recovery and you know, in the cybersecurity community, burnout is really high. Yeah, you know, for stress sure. is constant. I mean, you know, out of normal dealing with you know one of the largest you know threats that the that that big corporations face around email security, the onslaught that analysts and cybersecurity practitioners are totally uh, experiencing every day. So, do you have any any strategies you've adopted? I mean, you talked about prioritizing and kind of blocking out some time in your calendar. or Anything else that you've you know in terms of recovery that you're you're pushing your people to do, or strategies you've learned over time? Um, to help you not just kind of get some of your day back, but to to get to actually recover so you're fresh, you know, for the next fight.
2: Yeah, it's hard. And, you know, frankly, like, you know, I have it easy, right? A lot of kind of technology companies have it easy relative to cybersecurity industry. I mean, as as you know better than I do, right, that's, you know, cybersecurity is a a job where, you know, like when everything goes right, you know, the CEO doesn't call you up and say, Andy, thank you just so much for their big no attacks today, right? But, one phishing email gets through to the executive and all of a sudden it's like, what are we doing over there? Right. So it's like a really, it's it's somewhat of a thankless job. Right. And there's a lot of good work that goes unnoticed. And so I really kind of sympathize with, you know, our, the security teams we, we work with. I think for, you know, for me personally, um, I think, I think if I look back where I've made mistakes, um, like where I've made mistakes and kind of, you know, focusing my time, it's really, and I, I've, I kind of have sometimes get caught in this mode where I'm just trying to think about Hey, what's the next thing? What's the next thing, right? I think you can get kind of, you can feel like you're being very productive in the moments, right? By kind of keep doing things. I think the you know, the only, you know, I don't know if I have good advice here, but the only thing that's really worked for me is kind of just taking a step back and really you're know, spending more time planning and less time doing and really thinking about, okay, where do we need to be in six months? And like, what does success look like? And what are the most important things that are there? And I think when you kind of take that like longer term view, it, it's easier to, Kind of filter out some of the noise, and it kind of helps you get perspective about what really matters and what's going to kind of you know drive the um, you know kind of dr- drive the results, right? And you end up finding things that maybe are less important in the grand scheme of things that you can kind of deprioritize. I mean, that, that's kind of the that's the uh, thing that works well for me at at work. Um, but I know like you know everyone probably has different techniques for trying to figure out how to really maximize their impact
1: without you know trying to burn them in at oil. Yeah, man. Well, look, that that's why you know, Abnormal's on its path to being over 500, you know, <laughs> almost being a billion dollar company. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. you guys are you guys are on a great trajectory and it's because you're you're thinking about those things. Right. I think that's some of the success I see companies have is because their leaders are are, are you know, making talent a number one operating priority and recovery mm-hmm. for their folks and, and enabling an environment to to even acknowledge the fact that recovery is a thing is even just a big deal. Right. So, um, like like
2: getting, like getting the team rallied around the mission. I mean, like we're in an industry where like, we're literally fighting crime, right. That's, that's pretty awesome. Right. And it's, it's something that's like meaningful. It's important to go do. And, um, you know, I, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of people kind of like lose, lose sight of like, you know, what are we really trying to achieve as a team? and um, cuz it's just, it's a, it's a it's a hard job right again my job's easier than most people in in security but um yeah, i think it's like getting getting the team kind of rallied behind like you know the, the the mission right it's 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 very rare to have a you know to find an industry where you can you know you can make a good amount of money you can work with a great team and you can kind of work on a, a kind of a worthy cause for the world so i, I just Sometimes I just were reminding myself of that. Like, Hey, this is like a good thing we're doing. Right. That's uh, that can be refreshing for it's refreshing for me.
1: I think it's refreshing for a lot of our team as well. I love it. We got to keep protecting these mean digital streets out there, brother. So, all right, folks, we got to transition <laughs> to a commercial break. So hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram and searching at TF7 radio. And you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family and our so- favorite social media platform. For inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email, email george directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7, that's with number seven, folks, radio.com. We're going to pause some quick messages from our sponsors, then we'll be right back with CEO of Abnormal Security, Evan Reiser. So whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline.
3: Visit facebook.com forward slash voice america. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Synet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Cynet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Synet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Cynet. S I N E T.
4: In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate in business. Staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management.
1: Hey, man, I, you know, I really got to uh, dive in in this segment around abnormal and, you know, the, the real clear and present danger of business email compromise. Um, you know, it's something we talk about on the show a lot. Practitioners deal with it every second of the day. Um, you know, emails coming in through phishing, targeting Uh, executives, you know, social engineering them to try to get dollars sent out of the company, right? It's just constant, you know, and, and the FBI reports, you know, that there's more money lost in, in business email compromise than in any other crime, right? And we're talking huge dollars, right? (laughs) Huge dollars, right? So
2: it's more, more money than identity theft, credit card fraud, ransomware, all combined. So it's, it's, but it's something that, you know, people don't normally talk about because it's,
1: uh, you know, it's embarrassing right, to send a million dollars to the wrong place. Yeah, right. We're talking you know, large companies falling victim every time. And, and look, you know, to give security teams credit and infrastructure teams credit, there's a lot of great work happening to prevent the majority of bad emails coming into an organization. But sure. it's still not enough because at the end of the day, the human is the target, right? And so, you know, if things get in. And so, what what are you seeing in terms of um, the future of email security, and what is Abnormal doing to to kind of combat it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's kind of two there's kind of I think two trends right that are I think are significant for email security. One is just like the shift to these targeted attacks, right? Like five years ago, there was no there was no personalized social engineering attacks, right? Or there there was, but they were kind of at a, at a smaller scale. And so if you look look at the FBI data, right, we've seen almost like a 2x increase every year. And so I think that's kind of like the, that's just a shift in the threat landscape. And if you think about like, you know, conventional email security, which is based on, you know, heuristics, signatures, you know, reputation, URL analysis, sandboxing, those technologies are great, right? They're really good at stopping any attack that's been seen before. And that that stops, you know, 99% of the stuff gets through, right? So you have to give credit to like, the existing vendors there, right? The security teams have set up these systems. But I think the challenge is, you know, attackers have realized like there's there's now so much data on the internet, right? Whether it's LinkedIn or other data sets, it's very easy to figure out, you know, who's who who are all the accounts payable people? How do I email them? How do I pretend to be their boss? And if I send out a thousand emails asking for a hundred grand, right, you're going to probably get one hit. And so it's just a very kind of profitable attack. It's very effective at getting past, you know, conventional email security. And it's very effective, you know, for humans that are trying to, um, they're trying to help out and do their job, and uh, you know, attackers are using these you know, psychological and emotional, you know, uh, techniques of you know manipulation or to bypass critical thinking and get people to do bad stuff. So I think that's kind of like the, the first trend, is just the the shift in the threat landscape. And then yep. the, the the other trend that's notable is just you know the the shift to the cloud, right? So as and as you know, like every enterprise, right, is shifting into uh, you know from. On premise exchange, right? To, um, you know, Microsoft 3 c in the cloud. I think the, the significant part about that is that the, you know, the, these cloud platforms, right, have APIs that allow us to, you know, integrate in a totally different way, which creates a different architecture. And then some of these technologies have been around for a long time, right? Machine learning, AI, um, you know, th- those obviously are used at, at, at some level, right? But, you know, with access to kind of all these APIs inside Microsoft or Google, you know, 10x more data. You can now build models that are substantially more effective and you can take a fundamentally different approach, right? Rather than focusing on the, the known bad, you can build behavioral models of known good and then, you know, do various forms of behavioral anomaly detection, right? To stop some of these target attacks that, that haven't been seen. And I think that is the big challenge, right? It's a, it's a new attack, a new scam, a new, you know, thing every, every week and it's
1: different. So it's hard to really protect against without some, you know, machine learned solution. So so how has your, you know, your background in ad tech then started to kind of get applied into this space where you're looking at, you know, not just what bad looks like, but, you know, really leveraging ML and AI to um, fight this fight?
2: And yeah, There's a very nice way of saying like, you know, I've been mean, giving you a zero cybersecurity experience. Why are you
1: guys <laughs> You've of, never uh, been a practitioner. Yeah. How yeah. are you running almost a half a billion dollar company around yeah. email yeah. security? Yeah. Yeah. Um, our,
2: our secret yeah. is just like listening to people like you and kind of learning. But um, yeah, so, so I mean, if you think about like, uh, yeah, so my background's in, um, you know, behavioral ad targeting. And, um, you know, uh, my co-founder did this at Google. I did it at Twitter. Um, you know, the, the essence of kind of ad targeting is basically... Taking all the data about you know people right their interests who they follow what content they they like right and trying to figure you know trying to build a behavioral profile for that person to figure out you know who they are what do they do right what you know how are they going to react when you kind of present them with different types of content like ads or you know recommended tweets or posts or whatever it is and so you know um, if you think about the level of sophistication in mach- you know machine learning is a, a bit of a buzzword right especially in, in our industry. Um, But if you think about, like, the level of sophistication in, you know, Google search or Google ads machine learning versus kind of your average IT or security product, right, it's obviously orders of magnitude more sophisticated. And so, I think you've seen a lot of the innovation in, uh, you know, kind of um, behavioral understanding and, and, um, you know, behavioral targeting, right, all coming from out of the ads world. So, you know, that's what kind of me and our team have been doing for the last, you know, 10 years or so. And so, I think the the insight we had is that given these new cloud architectures, um, you know, we now have access to a lot more data from inside the organization, right? The communication graph, the vendor supply chain, you know, who t- you know the, the business processes they execute inside a company. And so, you know, what we try to do is we take that technology that was historically used for understanding consumers, right, in these, you know, very large kind of data-rich web applications, and then use that to build behavioral models of the organization, right, to understand the communication patterns, the business processes, like who gets what types of emails from what types of people, what types of day. And then, you know, rather than trying to, you know, stop stop kind of, um, you know, known attacks, we're, we're we're kind of using that behavioral understanding of the organization to look for anomalies to stop these attacks that are getting past gateways or getting past, you know, Microsoft or Google's built-in protection. So that's that's kind of how we're you're taking some of the technology, you know, from the ads world and then trying to, you know, apply and build like a, a real, you know, real machine learning and a real AI solution for for cybersecurity.
1: Yeah, I love it. So you know, I feel like. Look, email email is not going away anytime soon, but I do feel like with, you know, collaboration tools that the frequency of email is becoming less. Um, Where are you envisioning, you know, this threat going and how are you, you know, kind of starting to think about, you know, protecting this threat in and around, you know, collaboration tools?
2: Yeah, I mean it's yeah. I mean, there's like we talked about a minute ago, right? There's a huge explosion of you're everyone's moving everything to the cloud, right? Every piece of infrastructure, right? Every um, every application, right? And there's just an explosion of these, you know, collaboration and communication tools. And the awesome thing we get as as usually these tools, right? Is they're super easy to access, easy to communicate, easy to share information, um, and anyone can access these tools from any place in the world, right? Um, and so that's uh, you know that's 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 a risky thing, right, from a cybersecurity perspective. So I think that um, you know as we see more and more of these tools, right, there's going to be more kind of venues for people to engage with you know um, malicious content, or for kind of the bad guys to you know send you know documents or emails or files or Slacks or whatever it is, right, to to people in the organization. So you know the the approach we've taken, right, is um, you know. Or really kind of like the, the vision for the company is not just about stopping emails but we're trying to you know protect knowledge workers wherever knowledge workers work and today it's an email but as, as you know right and I know right like we're spending more and more time in in Zoom in Slack in Microsoft Teams right whatever it is and you know you know in, in our business where we've even seen you know many examples where people are breaking into email and they're you know breaking into email accounts or they're compromising accounts and they're kind of jumping different channels, right? Whether Teams or Skype, right? To go, you know, trick people into doing bad stuff, right? Or to kind of, you know, move throughout the organization. So I, th- I think that like the, the, yeah, the future of kind of, you know, communication collaboration, right, is expanding. And that I think, you know, the, the solution that I think organizations need in the future is, you know, some one-stop shop that can really protect all these different service areas and protect knowledge workers right inside the, the
1: modern cloud office. Yeah, I mean, I think you're you're spot on. So I'd love to be able to flip that lens around a little bit and kind of get your take on, you know, based on the modeling you're able to build and the kind of the you know visibility of an organization and kind of behavior of an of of an employee population, are you able to spin that lens around and apply those models to insider risk or insider threat, and say, you know, conversely. Certainly, yeah. The employee is now doing something different, and is that something that you have you've know, considered, or where, where are you at with that kind of thinking?
2: Yeah, I mean, we, I mean, we actually have a product that does, you know, that, that does this right. So it's really more focused on kind of an account compromise. But I think I think the kind of the general problem, right, is kind of like inappropriate usage of authorized accounts, right? Accounts that have, um, you know, the the right authentication, the right authorization, but they're kind of doing the wrong thing. And I think the, the two use cases, right? We see is either a compromised account where someone's broken into, you know, a Microsoft account and they're, you know, setting up mail rule filters to redirect email outside the organization or to hide their presence, right? Or there's kind of more the classic insider threat, in, in, insider threat where people are, you know, doing malicious things. And we, you know, we've seen examples and we've actually caught examples of, um, you know, all, all kind of the, the normal stuff you'd expect. But you know, we've even, even seen cases of people. Um, you know, using um, kind of company procurement systems, right, to kind of place fake orders to their to like their friends' companies and send products that don't get paid for. So we've seen all sorts of kind of, you know, more, more theft-related things that are probably in this bucket of insider threat. And, and generally I think the more you can kind of understand, you know, um, you know, the more kind of like an, an AI machine learning system can understand the behavior of a business, where right? you can start looking for anomalies, whether it's a bad email, it's a suspicious invoice coming from a vendor that doesn't exist. Or maybe, you know, in the future, it could be, you know, some person that's in the wrong part of the factory, right? That could be dangerous. So I think that the more you can kind of learn the inside of an organization kind of through these new machine learning technologies, that'll create a whole type of, you know, a whole bunch of kind of automated, you know, detect, detection and prevention techn- you know, solutions that will, I think, you know, better, better protect, you know, modern companies.
1: Yeah. So do you, do you think there's a market for kind of outsourcing kind of email monitoring, you know, like like mm-hmm. based on the research you're doing and the, the models you're building, um, you know, do you have an ability to kind of proactively see things happening, you know, beforehand? Obviously, you can block things with your technology, but do you think that there's a market for kind of outsourcing, like just like your outsource security operations center monitoring, you know, like tier one, tier two? Do you think there's a niche kind of email security monitoring offering that you, you, know, you either haven't have today or that you think could be something in the future?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's something that would be kind of like fully outsourced, right? Um, I think there's a, there's a lot of kind of, you know, privacy and security issues around around that. Um, although I, I do think kind of like the model in the future, right, is, you know, sec, you know existing security operations teams that are kind of um, augmented, right, through kind of machine learning and AI technologies. And, you know, you know we, you know, uh, just sorry, not to totally plug our products here, but you know, what one of our, um, you know, one of our features, right, is kind of analyzing, you know, kind of looking at the data across email logins, other security logins like Microsoft, and then trying to detect compromises right before action happens, right? So you see a weird login from a location that by itself doesn't mean much. All of a sudden, that person is saying weird mail rules, you know, set to like automatically delete messages. Then they start emailing people inside the company that they've never talked to before. I think that in the future, right, I think um, you know, there's technologies, whether it's us or someone else, that can kind of look through all these, you know, you know, billions of signals inside the organization, which are all by themselves. You you can't alert on them because they're all you would have too many false positives. But there are some kind of like, you know, there are some bits of signal there. If you combine the data right across all these different channels, right, you can actually detect, you know, um. You know different types of compromise or threats right with, with very high precision so I, th- I think that, that that'd be my guess right that's the model for the future right is it's existing security operations teams right but they're not doing the uh, you know they're not doing kind of the kind of lower level like log analysis where that's all done you know programmatically through you know AI systems and then that's kind of surfacing the you know, the kind of packaged up cases with these statistically significant events, right, to the more senior analysts to really kind of make a final judgment. So that's that's kind of my guess where where that goes. But I do think that the, the need is there, right? You know, email's the open gateway to the internet where anyone in the world can email your organization, they're going to read it. So I do think there's a need there and that, you know, that's that's my guess and kind of what the solution will look like.
1: Yes, super cool, man. But let, let, me, let me switch gears real quick on you because I think… You know, you've been doing AI for, for quite some time and I'd love to get your perspective on this. And, you know, on the show, we've, we've had guests on and we've talked a little bit about at a high level, the nation state side of the AI battle. And, and you know, to some extent, people feel like whoever wins the AI game kind of starts to dominate on a global stage. You know, what, what's your, where, you know, what do you see the future of AI being kind of how does that get, you know, played out over the next five years? Yeah. I
2: mean, it's hard to say, right? You know, the future comes faster than, you know, you think, right? And just do the exponential nature of technology. Um, I don't know, the, the kind of sci-fi nerd in me, right, you know, is excited about the, you know, or maybe terrified of the kind of, you know, the general, the general <laughs> AI concept, right? The, you know, which is more the, the science fiction or the AIs that can kind of think, you know, think like a human. They can practice, right? That's not what we see, right? When you look at kind of the most sophisticated applied machine learning technologies, it's really more kind of like specialist ais and they're you know the, these technologies are very good at you know kind of pattern matching and kind of mimicking mimicking the behaviors or mimicking the judgments of humans but you know i think in you know at least in the next 5 years where i think you're going to see you're more of that applied to more places but um and i think like the the power of these technologies is is, is um, you know they're orders they're one or two orders of magnitude more effective right then kind of non-machine learned approaches, but I think that'll kind of stay in the in the kind of specialist AI domain, right? Where you have like specific models that are making judgments on a very specific kind of problem set, not kind of a general AI that can solve you know, problems across any problem set. So now that being said, I do think people generally underestimate kind of the the uh, capacity, right, of some of these technologies, right? And there's, I think if you look at even cybersecurity some of the problems that are considered Impossible today, like you know, impossible, you know, possibly difficult to solve without a human intervention today. I think ninety percent of those will be solved, kind of with you know, with kind of you know, real AI technologies, you know, over the next five years. And obviously, like it's it's hard to tell from the surface, right? What is kind of like real AI versus marketing AI? But you know, ultimately, the proof's in the pudding, right? If the technology can deliver, you know, ten x higher precision, right, or 10, find ten x more threats, then it's, you know, that's kind of really the only way to really distinguish the two apart.
1: So, so before we head on out for a quick break, you know, can you give a little public service announcement around how people can protect themselves against BEC attacks? Yeah, I mean, so I,
2: I would kind of characterize BEC right as people, you know, sending various forms of social engineering attacks to try to you know, steal money from the business. And the you know the, the challenge of these they they bypass you know conventional email security systems, whether it's a gateway or kind of the native protection of Microsoft or Google because they're not using, there's no bad reputation. There's no links, there's no attachments. And it's like a new scam every day. So whatever kind of rules you try to write, they're going to be invalid, you know, in a week. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard, right? There's a reason why it's the number one cybercrime. Um, yeah. You know, you know, for, for people that, you know, obviously like I would recommend buying our solution as a bias, you know, as a bias CEO, <laughs> I would say outside of that, right. You can probably get pretty far by, you um, you know, probably there's some like very obvious attacks, right? Everyone knows about CEO impersonation, executive impersonation. There's probably some, there's probably some basic rules everyone can write to stop, you know, the worst 80%, but um, yeah, as, as you know, right, it's like that, that, the top, you know, the most sophisticated 0.1% is going to cause 99% of the problems. So I think, you know, outside of, yeah, outside of a kind of a, a, a you know, a sophisticated email security solution, it's, it's hard to really get that from where it is today down to zero.
1: Man. I- I appreciate it. All right, folks, we're going to take another short break to hear from our sponsors. Don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from CEO of Abnormal Security, Evan Reiser. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and
3: network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. And the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Cynet. S I N E T.
4: In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate in business. Staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management.
0: You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here
1: again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with CEO of Abnormal Security, Mr. Evan Riser. Evan, I appreciate you opening up about your career early on in the show. And, uh, you know, I really would love for you to share, continue to share some advice, you know, that you would give to folks that are, you know, early stages in, in being an entrepreneur or even just considering, you know, entrepreneurship.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think everyone knows this, right? But, you know, starting, starting companies and being an entrepreneur and actually just generally like working hard, right, is, is difficult, right? And, um, and the reality is like most startups fail, right? Uh, most startups are not successful. Um, you know, I, I am also the founder of failed startups, right? So I, I'm, I'm saying this with all humility. Um, I, mean, I think like the, the biggest reason why, you know, startups aren't successful is they're, they're, pro- they're solving a problem that people don't really care about solving right now. And so I think that a lot of, um, you know, I think a, a lot of entrepreneurs, or I'll say a different way, like I think one very valuable quality in entrepreneurs is humility, right? Kind of just recognizing that you don't know everything. And I think the entrepreneurs that do that really well, if they kind of admit they don't know all the answers, right, that force them to go spend more time with their their customers, their community, really understand like what what matters to their customers. And I think that the best, the best, um, you know, the best founders and the best leaders, right, at, at all levels. Right. They're they're kind of always working backwards from the customer and trying to understand, you know, what are the what are the problems like, you know, why is that a problem today? Why do you care about this? You know, what do you wish we do? What what, what do you wish you could do better? And if I think about kind of, you know, why has abnormal grown so quickly over the last three years? I think part of the reason the team has been very humble, right? You know, mostly because we know nothing. We knew nothing about cybersecurity on day one, and it forced us to really go talk to hundreds of customers and find out what do they care about and why is you know. X, Y, Z solution I'm working on? What do you wish, you know, your current vendor would go do? So I think that's kind of like the, you know, it's, I know it's common advice, but I really think it's important is to really stay focused, you know, have a humble, you know, have have humility, have a growth mindset, and then you just really spend time with your customers and listen to them and, you know, don't never think you know more than your customers.
1: Is that, you know, do you feel like you have that, you know, kind of, I don't know if it's a situation or ability to have that patience to go do the research upfront. You know, did you have like some sort of executive top cover to be able to have that? I mean, you're the CEO, right? So it was, you know, was this like how you chose to start abnormal where like maybe in your first venture, you didn't feel like you, you know, you had to make money. You were like playing poker to turn servers on. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, <sighs> was there a different level of pressure maybe now where you are in your career to be able to take that approach? And do you think you could have taken that same approach earlier in your career when maybe financially things were a little harder?
2: I mean, I definitely could have, right? I mean, I think the you know just the I think the problem with me, right, as like a young you know as a young coder, right? I just thought I knew everything about the world, right? I wanted to go prove to myself and to the rest of the world that I could do it all by myself. And I think just you know over time, uh, you know, I've kind of fought down the you know i fought back the kind of ego of. know the young man's ego, right? And um, just become much more comfortable, like like knowing that I don't know a lot of things, and just being very curious and open minded. And it's like amazing, right? Especially in enterprise software, which is you know our business. It's amazing. Like you you go talk to customers, you say, "Hey, what would you like us to do?" And then you go build that thing really well, and uh, you know, and then people pay you for it. Like it's a pretty simple formula. But I think a lot of kind of um, a lot of startups are not successful. Right? They get a little bit too confident in their own beliefs, right? And too confident in their own mental models. They don't take the time to really, you know, test and really make sure they're they're doing something that people care about. So I, I think that, I think anyone can do it, right? Um, but you got it takes some, you know, energy and discipline. You know, we, we talked to, know, um, we started abnormal. We probably talked to 50 CISOs before we wrote any line of code that like is probably in the product today. So I think just, we really wanted to clarify you know, what are the problems with email security and, you know, how do we build a, a truly innovative solution? And there's no way that, you know, me and my co-founder Sanjay could have sat, we could have sat in a, white, in a room with a whiteboard for a hundred years and we never would have gotten, you know, the insights that we learned in like the first, you know, 50 customer meetings. So I think just, I think that that's what's, yeah, I think it comes down to humility and a growth mindset.
1: Yeah, that, that's important, man. So were there, were there any lessons that you learned, like, as you progress as in, you know, the growth of Abnormal and other companies you've been a part of, you know, as a CEO, you know, or entrepreneur, the different stages of that growth, like, what are the, you know, things that you've learned that maybe, you know, apply at the different stages of a, the company's growth? You have to change that mindset yeah. at all, or how are you approaching it? You know, as you as you continue. Well, I,
2: I think kind of like the the curiosity and humility and open mindedness, right? And you're kind of cu- the customer obsession. I think that that's always constant, but I think it. You know, at um, especially like a fast growing startup. Like, you know, we've we've you know we've been around for about three years. We're about two hundred people today. You know, we're used by you know probably more than five percent of the Fortune one thousand things. So things have grown like really fast. So I think it's, you know, the last couple of years have made it, really it definitely kind of made it really clear to me kind of how the job, cha- how your job as a founder changes, right? So kind of the, the framework I use is like, there's kind of like the zero to one, right? And maybe it's zero to one million dollars in revenue or zero to one something, right? But I think it's kind of this like early stage where your job is really about like, you know, talking to customers and build, like it's like kind of building and selling, right? And not all products, you know, sell directly to customers, but, you know, at least in enterprise software, it's about building and selling. Right? That's really what your job is as a founder, right? You're doing the same thing everyone else in the team is doing. And then there's kind of like the, so I think that's kind of like the, the first stage, right? Zero to one. Then it's kind of like the one to 10, which is, you know, maybe in our business, one to 10 million in revenue. I think that's really about, you know, kind of stepping away from the like, literally doing everything yourself to starting to kind of like build the team, right? How do you find people that are way better, way smarter than you and all those things and slowly kind of firing yourself from different jobs, right? You know, I'm not the best salesperson. I'm not the best software engineer. I'm not the best marketer. I can do kind of like a C C-plus job at all those things. But I think this one to 10 stage, which is really about kind of assembling a team, right? And, um, you know, getting people who are better than you to kind of contribute to the mission, but also kind of staying close to the details to make sure you really kind of understand what's going on. And then I think that the third stage, which is maybe like the the 10 to 100, right? You know, maybe 10 million to 100 million in revenue. I think that's really about scaling, right? It's about how do you, you know, predictably, reliably, you know, um, you know, sell your product when you have, you know, 40 salespeople, right? How do you predictably, repeatedly build product when you have a hundred engineers? And so I think to, to do that, right, it's much more about kind of operational management and, you know, how do you do project management scale, program management scale? How do you, you know, do executive recruiting? How do you, um, you know, kind of organize 200 people and point them all in the right direction in a way where everyone kind of knows what we're doing and, and why. So I, I think the, you know, every company will be a little bit different, but I think there's kind of usually these kind of three stages of kind of, you know, uh, of, of, of scaling. And I think just the, the most important thing for a founder is just to kind of recognize, you know, what is your job right now? And that that job, you know, can change very quickly right as the business grows. And, you know, I think that, you know, where I've gotten a lot of, I think what's been most helpful for me is kind of having, Um, you know, mentors and advisors that have kind of seen that journey that can kind of really push me and say, hey, I've been like, why are you doing that today, right? You need to be thinking about this, this, and this and kind of constantly thinking about, you know, how does my job evolve and what changes at this next set of scale? I think that's been something really effective for for me and also the rest of our leadership team.
1: So, you know, what's the one, what's one myth you had about being an entrepreneur that you found out to be true? Yeah,
2: I mean, I think the, yeah, I think that the cliche, right, especially for Silicon Valley startups is you have some sort of secret knowledge, some secret expertise, or some special expertise, and you take that and you go kind of build something that's very unique. And I think that's, um, you know, I don't think that's true. Right? I think, you know, it comes back to like humility and growth mindset. I think like people are really capable of doing a lot more than they think they are. And it just takes, you know, discipline and hard work and kind of an open mind. And I think you can accomplish a lot. Um and I think like Admirable Security is an example of that. You know, the if you look at the founding team, like no one came from cybersecurity. We didn't know anything, right? But I, you know, by by staying, you know, there was no kind of special knowledge, special expertise that were, you know, about, about cybersecurity. And so I, I think, you know, I, I don't, I don't say I don't mean to 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 brag there anyway, but I think it's actually very inspiring to think that like, hey, like, you know, anyone can go, you know, solve like any problem, right? If you really kind of focus on it and you stay connected to your customers. You stay, you know, you stay disciplined about your own kind of growth and open-mindedness. I think that there's, you know, a lot more that people can do than they realize.
1: Yeah, I love that story, man. I mean, I think it's so true. I mean, you know, having that diversity of thought is, is so important, and and bringing that to to the problem set, you know, at, at least in cyber. Um, so, so before I let you go, man, I, I I am curious. You know, you your your team is growing. You're, you're hiring some new leaders, uh, or you have recently. You know, what are, what do you personally look for, you know, in, in, in a person as you're, you're looking to bring them onto your leadership team? Yeah,
2: it's, it's a good question. I mean, generally I try to find people that are like way out of my league who are like way better, you know, way better executives for me. Cause you know, I, I think that any, any, any high functioning team, right. Whether it's, you know, whether it's an executive team or any other team in the company, right. You really have to work together. Right. Um, and, and I was like, you know, generally the framework I use for evaluating executives, right? There's kind of four things I look for. One is kind of people leadership, right? So, you know, can they recruit, you know, are they talent magnets? Can they recruit people? Can they organize people? Can they coach people and kind of mentor them? Um, the second one is, you know, operational leadership, right? So, you know, can they, you know, can they prioritize? Can they build plans? Can they do project management at scale? I think those are important skills for, you know, any manager, right? Or any, any kind of leader in an organization. The third one is, is thought leadership. Um, and I don't mean like, you know, they have to write, you know, medium blog posts on stuff, right? But I look for you know principle thinking, critical thinking, analytical thinking, right? People that can be you know, really thoughtful and intentional in how they work and how they think and how they communicate. I think that's like re- really important for you know for a, a hyper-growth you know, startup. And the final one is, is cultural leadership, right? Um, and I think you know every company has a different culture, you know, everyone has different core values. And I think that when you're trying to build a team at scale, you want to find people that can be like cultural leaders. And what I mean by that is like they kind of understand why, you know, what what uh, behaviors are valuable in the organization, and they can kind of personally exemplify those 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 uh, behaviors. And then they can also really coach and train the team and kind of recognize good behavior, you know, shut down bad behavior to make sure that you know kind of all the the, the entire company is kind of you know working and making decisions right in a aligned way. That's kind of Align you know, with the core values. You know, for us, that's you know, velocity, ownership, intellectual honesty, customer obsession, ambition for excellence, right? So You know, when I, when I look to hire executives or even promote people, right, that's the framework that I look at because I know that those kind of ways of us working and making decisions as a company are going to be valuable for our customers, valuable for the company. And I really, I don't need people that can, I don't need executives that can just manage a lot of people and build great spreadsheets. I need people that can really help us build that culture so that we can win right
1: at scale. I love that advice, man. Super cool. Evan, I really appreciate you coming on the show, buddy. Thank you so much for having me. Hopefully, we can talk again soon. Sounds good, bro. I'll catch up with you soon. All right, folks, time for us to bounce about out of here. But before I go, I want to remind our listeners to, get a, to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to get a recap of tonight's show and get other up to date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there.